Uh, would you join me in prayer this morning, church? Father God, we come before you this morning to collectively worship your amazing name. You created the heavens and the earth and said that it was good. You created the animals of the field, the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air and said that it is good. You created man and said that it is good. You said that it was good that you created man even though you knew the wickedness that man would have, that I would have, and all of this so that your son could be glorified. Even though you knew the wickedness that dwells in our hearts, you asked your son to come and die for our sins even though he had done no wrong. Nothing can compare to this amazing love that you have demonstrated to your creation. On this Father's Day, we recognize that the world is fighting against the idea of family traditions. The world says that they don't need authority figures. The world goes against everything in your nature. I ask you, Lord Jesus, to be with the fathers of this body. May we, the men of Mission Fellowship, be willing to stand for what is right. May we not be willing to teach our, may we be not only willing to teach our children how to be submitted to you, but may we live out our lives as an example to our kids to fully submit our own lives into your hands. I pray for the members of this church this morning. For those that did not grow up in a home with a dad that followed after Jesus, may they not let the view of their own dad taint the perfect love that you have shown us. For those that did grow up in a home with a dad that did submit his life to you, may they rejoice for that loving care and the example that they were shown. Wherever each of us stands today, may we take a moment to acknowledge and honor the amazing character and name of our Heavenly Father today. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for all of the kids of this church. Today is a special day where a lot of our kids are moving into different classes. May you be with them through this transition and draw them to yourself as disciples. We want to lift up a special prayer for our brother, Spencer Holland. We thank you for our brother this morning and pray that as he transitions out of the rooted gatherings that you would continue to grow him spiritually as a man after your own heart. May he continue to pursue your righteous ways and not be tempted by the ways of the world. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that this is not merely a gathering of people with a similar idea or hobby, but this is a family. And just as traditional families can be spread to various geographical areas, your church family spreads to the ends of the earth, and we pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world today. We pray specifically for Saving Grace Church in Milwaukee and Pastor Brian Winchester as he presents your word today. May the truth of your gospel be heard and shown to the surrounding areas. We pray similarly for the entire NCN and the work that this network believes and is doing to spread your gospel message. Finally, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the elders and pastors that I have the privilege of serving alongside here at Mission Fellowship. I thank you for the past teachings that Nick and Hans have given through the book of Psalms so far as you have used those teachings to grow us in our discipleship. I pray now for my brother Ryan as he preaches your word. May he fade away this morning as we all look to your word to guide us. In your holy name I pray. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat and open your Bibles to Psalm 11. You've heard these sayings or sayings like these, that you are what you eat or you are the sum or the average of the three or the five people that you spend the most time with. The idea is that what you consume or the people that you're around actually become a part of you. And so your thoughts, your words, your actions, all of it, your output is the result of the input. 
The Psalms we're going to examine today are the output of a person who has treated God's law as their daily bread. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, and Caleb are their closest friends. The psalmist has spent so much time considering God's character that God's righteousness is coming out of his pores. It sends him springing out of his shoes. And the Holy Spirit has, has placed these two psalms in our hands for our good and for his glory. We'll see that today as we consider the themes of refuge and righteousness in God's holy throne room. Look at Psalm 11 with me. We see from the heading here that this is a psalm of David. And at the very opening, he's making very clear where his loyalty lies. But not just his loyalty, it's specifically his refuge. When he faces attacks or adversity or difficulties of any kind, he finds protection in Yahweh God. Then we'll see something that we haven't yet encountered in the Psalms. David has a human conversation partner that he's engaging with, and he's essentially recorded the conversation. The tone of this psalm is combative and victorious. David is incredulous at what's being said to him. He says, how can you say to my soul? And then he repeats back what his opponent says to him. Then David responds with strength and clarity. So let's read the psalm together with that tone in mind. I'll do my best to use a little more inflection than I normally do. I'm reading from the ESV, so if you have a different translation, there are a few words that are different, but just keep going. Let's start together in verse 1 of Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The first thing we'll consider from this text comes from verses 1 through 3. That is, the faulty counsel of the wicked. David makes this bold, combative proclamation of where his refuge lies because this supposed counselor has spoken poison into his very soul. They have tried to undermine him at the core of his being. We don't know for certain if this person is from within David's camp, someone who lacks faith but thinks that they're trying to protect David, or if this is trash talk coming from an opponent outside of faithful Israel. Either way, this person is in a position of opposing God's revealed righteousness and justice. David's confident statement of refuge in the Lord is contrasted with his opponent's fearful counsel to flee. He gives the call to retreat. 
At best, this is a call to self-interested isolation and hopelessness. At worst, it's a rather sarcastic remark that one commentator translates, fly away to the mountains, little birdie. I can't help but hear that in the voice of the wicked witch from The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> then we see that they fear the wicked who are ready to shoot arrows. They don't believe God sees and will bring judgment on the wicked and vindicate the upright. It's as if they haven't read or believed Psalm 1. Do this for me. As we go through the Psalms, as you read them together and on your own, keep Psalm 1 in your mind. See how it is the spring that all the other Psalms drink from. Whether praise or lament, royal, individual, or communal Psalms, they base everything on the firm belief that if you look at Psalm 1, verses 5 and 6, everything is based on the belief that the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In Psalm 11, David's opponent lacks the basic faith, the basic understanding that God's righteousness and justice will always prevail. There are two ways of the wicked we can see here. The first are those who attack God's people. They are blatant, here pictured as preparing their bow to shoot from the dark at the upright. They're in the dark, making no claims to godliness. They outright hate the ways of God and seek to undermine his people every way they can. The second way of the wicked is less obvious, but just as wicked. The second is to doubt God and discourage his people. They make themselves a stumbling block on the way to faithfulness. The opponent speaks of foundations being destroyed, but they have no foundations themselves. They are cast about like chaff in the wind. Farmers, even today, where they don't have machinery, trample the wheat to separate useful grain from the stalks. Then it's winnowed, it's tossed in the air. Useless chaff is blown away even by a light wind while the useful grain remains. Like chaff in the wind, temporary earthly circumstances cause them to twist their thinking, to conform to what they perceive to be the side that's winning today. There is no weight to them so they latch on to whatever ideology is fashionable at the time. They look around and they see utter chaos, so they join in. Their refuge is the mob. Their refuge is the approval of the world. They are the ones who are fleeing to and fro, seeking relief in all the wrong places. They have their minds set on the activities of humanity, not on the activity of God. The only people who can stake claim to having a foundation in being like trees planted by streams, the only people who will produce fruit that will last are those who delight in the law of the Lord, those who meditate on it day and night. They know God's foundational character, and they know he will never be shaken. So let's look at David's response, the response of the righteous. 
Let's look at verses 4 through 7 again to refresh our memory. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. David refuses to stand in the counsel of the wicked. As opposed to the wicked, whose minds are set on the activity and the seeming success of rebellious humanity, the righteous have their minds set on God's just and holy rule. For God to be in his temple, in, on his throne in heaven, is not about his distance. It's not about him being far away. Instead, it's about his authority. He is undefeated. He is whole. He is holy. From his throne, he can see all that is happening. So the righteous can be confident and secure when they take refuge in him. David's declaration and the response is rooted in the knowledge of God's law. What righteousness is, it's the revelation of God's character. Part of David's response to his opponent is to remind him that God sees. And seeing comes with understanding and perception. He's not an uninterested observer. God is not mocked. Humanity will reap what it sows. God is not blind. He does not forget. God is not surprised by all of the chaos and rebellion in the world. All of humanity is examined, tested, proven by trials. And God's testing divides them here into two groups. First, there is the wicked. Look at verse 5, speaking of God. His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. This simple equation is that those who love violence, those who use violence to obtain their desires, or even just violence for the sake of violence, God hates them from his innermost being. What they have sown, they will reap. The fruit of their lives brings severe divine judgment. The psalmist uses language reminiscent of Sodom and Gomorrah to describe the end of the wicked. Destruction awaits those who think God will not execute justice. The second group is the upright. They imitate God in his love for righteous deeds. The righteous know that the attacks they are experiencing are the proving ground for their faith in God. So they take comfort that God sees them, and their reward is to behold his face. The Psalms are a book of hymns. They have an implicit invitation because they were sung, we are to bring, you're to bring yourself into them. You're to let your emotions and your thoughts, your doubts and your fears be filtered and redirected through them into worship. But it's a mistake to read Psalm 11 and always and only see yourself in David's shoes. You have the potential to sit in the seat of the scoffer. How do I know this? If the Apostle Peter 
the rock that Jesus built his church on could do this, then so can you. Turn to our New Testament reading for today, Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verses 21 through 27, have remarkable parallels to Psalm 11. Just prior to this passage, Peter has proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Let's see how he follows up that bold proclamation. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus has laid out for his disciples the redemptive plan that he, in unison with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, have put into place. He is to go to Jerusalem, suffer, die, and then be raised. And Peter rebukes him. He tries unknowingly to make himself a stumbling block. But Jesus' trust in God's firm foundation, in God's plan, did not waver. And just like David responded to the scoffer, Jesus responded to Peter. And what a response. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus did not mince words about which side Peter was on in that moment. He responded in righteousness, correcting Peter, redirecting his focus from the things of man to the things of God. Like Peter in this situation, like the scoffer in Psalm 11, we have the potential to be a stumbling block between the people around us and faithfulness to God. This is a question worthy of consideration. Are there ways I am a scoffer of God's righteousness? Is there some way that you're enabling someone in your life to avoid God? Is there a way you're preventing them from engaging with God to their fullest? Are you ignoring them as they head to destruction? When you make a relationship or societal norms more important than the eternal truth of God's righteous nature, you are in the seat of the scoffer. We all have room to elevate God's law in our lives. We can all, in our conversations here at home and everywhere else we go, pause, take a breath, and make sure we are sending them to the Lord for refuge. Let's turn the question around and, exa and examine this another way. 
Are there ways I am susceptible to those who scoff at God's righteousness? These doubts arise in all of us, whether from someone else or maybe from your own internal voice, and they tempt us to turn from God's decrees. Maybe the voice is saying, this whole church thing isn't really working out for me. Or this whole biblical sexual ethic, or faithfulness to your spouse, or the Bible's teaching on authority, or maybe you want to store up some riches here on earth, or maybe it just seems like the wicked keep winning, and you get tired, and that voice is telling you to flee. Find refuge somewhere else. But we know that these are the proving grounds. These times, these circumstances that tempt us to quit because it's just too hard, we remind ourselves then, we remind each other that God sees, he sees us. We can show our trust in him by finding refuge in him. The voice telling you to flee is saying, save yourself while you can. But Jesus' words here in Matthew 16 tell us something different. If you try to save your life, you will lose it. But there is refuge when you trust your life to him. To lose your life for his sake is to gain it. Hear Jesus' call. We have all tried to keep our lives for ourselves. We have all in some way been scoffers. But Jesus has led the way for us by losing his life for our sake. If this idea is new to you and you want to know more, I and the other pastors of this church would love to talk to you after the service and tell you more about what it means to lose your life and gain Christ. All of Scripture teaches there is a good way to go and there is a bad way to go. The good way ends in beholding the face of God, and the bad way ends in destruction. There is no third way. There is no neutral state. Look at Matthew 16, verse 27. The same promise is made here as in Psalm 11, only centered on Christ as the judge. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. The scoffer of Psalm 11 will be proven wrong in the end, regardless of present circumstances. Those who take refuge in God will see his face. The Psalms can train us to desire God's presence and build our affections for him. Turn with me to Psalm 15. for all of the combat of Psalm 11. Psalm 15 takes a completely different form, but it's still the product of a mind and a heart that treasures God's holy temple more than anything else. In 11, the psalmist is rebuking an opponent, but 15 has the psalmist talking with God and longing for the holiness required to be in his presence. It's an entrance liturgy where the worshiper asks for the conditions of entering the sanctuary and is given an answer. Let's see what it says. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? 
Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Inside this question of who shall dwell on your holy hill, the Hebrew word behind the English word dwell carries the idea of being a resident alien. Living on the hill is at, a, at the gracious permission of the landowner. Before even getting to the answers to this question, we are immediately put in a posture of thankfulness. We are thankful because it is only by his grace that we can be in his presence. We are thankful because it is only by his grace that we can know his character. His law and a list of virtues like we have here before us are precious to us. Even God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world. All humanity will be held accountable to their creator. It's a blessing that he has revealed himself specifically in his word so that we can know him and know what he asks of his creation. He has told us the way of the righteous. We have 11 answers to the question. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? These are the demands of righteousness. This is the style of living that prepares you for living in the presence of God. Here is the holiness without which no one will see God. The answers cover conduct, conversation, relationships, values, integrity, and financial contentment. Let's look at each of these. First, the worshiper walks blamelessly and does what is right. These are parallel ideas, the second expanding on the first. The idea of life being a journey like a walk on a path is present here. There are many proverbs that talk about a straight path that leads to life, contrasted with a crooked path that leads to death. Again, Psalm 1 is ringing in our ears. Sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. The blameless are those whose lives are marked by ethical rightness according to God's law. To be blameless in this sense is not to claim to be absolutely sinless. It means to have a life that is whole by virtue of consistent dedication to the way of the Lord. Job talks about being blameless, even as he also confesses to having sinned. David frequently professes his righteousness, despite also confessions of iniquity. To be blameless is to have purity of purpose, to remove yourself from fellowship with the wicked, because you expect that in the final judgment, you will be counted among the righteous, not among the scoffers. The other answers all fall under this heading of walking blamelessly and doing what is right. The next nine answers are what it means to do what is right. The worshiper must speak truth in their heart. 
they don't tolerate falsehood even in their internal monologue. Here, a connection to Psalm 11 emerges, where David says, how can you say to my soul? The worshiper in Psalm 15 will not even let his soul talk to his soul in a way that is false. That's what it means to be sober-minded, to be ruthlessly committed to reality. To dwell in the house of the Lord means you are a person who does not create narratives about God, yourself, or others that aren't based in reality. The truthfulness extends now externally, as the worshiper does not slander with their tongue. Their speech agrees with their inner life, creating integrity that makes them a reliable person. They do no evil to their neighbor, nor do they take up a reproach against their friend. Righteousness progresses now from the general sense of doing what is right to the specific of doing no evil to a neighbor. Truthfulness progresses from the general of speaking truth in the heart to the specific of not speaking reproachfully of a friend. The sense of a particular community is growing as these answers begin to focus from the general to the specifics of neighbors and friends. And it grows even more specific in verse 4, as the worshiper's attitude toward the wicked and the righteous is examined. Here another parallel to Psalm 11 emerges. The Lord's soul hates the wicked, while here in Psalm 15, the worshiper despises a vile person. Part of being a blameless person is to avoid association with the wicked. The worshiper would not let their affections get entangled with someone who would draw them away from loyalty to God. But our psalms today go beyond that to terms like hate and despise. According to our texts today, it is right to hate those who love violence and to despise a vile person. I've said this before, and it's worth saying again. If the Bible presents something to us that is hard for us to understand, that means it's something we should spend extra time on. It reveals a conflict between us and the inspired word of God, and we would be blessed if we would work it out. There is no conflict between these statements and Christ's command to love our enemies. It is all reconciled in the real, actual offering of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Those who were at war with God can now have peace, but only through Jesus Christ. God is truly at war against those who oppose him, and you should not be afraid to join him in that. I've said this before, and it's worth saying again. If you find it easy to hate those who love and despise the vile person, you have the chance to examine yourself to make sure there's no self-righteousness present. Even as the world was dishing out all of the hate and violence it could on Jesus, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To rightly despise the vile person, you have to be able to pray for them in the same way that Jesus did for those who were crucifying him. You have to be able to pray for them in the same way that you pray for your dearest friends and family members. By the death of his son, you were reconciled to God when you were an enemy. When you were opposed to God, someone loved you enough to share the gospel with you, and God loved you by making and accepting his son 
as a sacrifice. In contrasting parallel to despising the vile person, the worshiper must honor those who fear the Lord. In order to be accepted into God's holy presence, you must honor others who desire God's holy presence. If this isn't a psalm about committing to a local church, then I don't know what is. The priorities of the worshiper are on God and his people. Galatians 6.10 says that we should do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. There's a prioritization in how we use our time and our talent and our treasure to build up the church. I would contend that this is not just in a vague, ethereal, putting good vibes out there way. This means actually praying through the church directory. This means actual service in the church, even if it isn't your preferred area. It's been said that attention is the purest form of generosity. I'm going to co-opt that here and say that giving your full attention to those who fear the Lord is an excellent way to honor them. Not waiting for them to do it to you, but to do it for them. This is worthy of more reflection. How can I honor those who fear the Lord? Looking back to the last part of verse 4, the worshiper must be willing to follow through on their promises, even when it is costly. It would be better to not make a vow than to make one and not follow through. Their commitment to doing what is right does not waver, even when it hurts. Oaths and vows might seem like the practice of a distant culture until we, re we remind ourselves of marriage vows and church covenants, contracts at work, and any number of other spoken and unspoken agreements we have with the people around us. Suddenly, we have ample opportunity to keep our promises, even when it hurts. The last two answers for the worshiper considers their attitudes toward money. First, they don't put their money out at interest. The law specifically in Exodus 22, and further in Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 23, forbids charging interest on loans to countrymen. As is usually the case, loans were made to someone who needed money but didn't have any. To make the loan could be an act of generosity. Helping someone purchase land that would provide for their needs and produce an income to repay the loan is admirable. But profiting from someone else's need was not permitted. Similar to not making oaths unless you intend on keeping them, if you can't make a loan without charging interest, maybe you don't have the money to make a loan. There's an excellent proverb that applies here. Whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit gathers it for him who is generous to the poor. This, of course, implies that God would take that profit from them and give it to someone who would use it in a righteous way. The worshiper is called to contentment and generosity. They recognize that all they have comes from God and they use all they have to glorify God. Last, the worshiper must not take bribes against the innocent. 
This is expressly prohibited in God's law and is an outworking of speaking truth in your heart and not slandering with your tongue. Psalm 15 ends with the statement, He who does these things shall never be moved. A call back to Psalm 1 again, but it seals the question from the beginning of who shall dwell on God's holy hill. The worshiper who lives this way shall not only dwell there, but they will never be moved. These practices make their presence with God secure. As Christians living on this side of the cross, we can meditate on this psalm and see how Christ is the truly blameless one who was sinless, always did what was right. He was so perfectly committed to the truth, internally and with his words. He was righteous in pronouncing judgment on those who opposed him. And he made a family forever out of those who fear the Lord. His generosity is eternally unmatched. Not only is Jesus the perfect worshiper seeking to dwell forever on God's holy hill, but he, as John 3.13 says, he descended from heaven. He came from God to bring us to God. So what do we do with a psalm like Psalm 15? You know I'm not going to talk for long, so listen close. Walk this narrow path with me. There are ditches on either side of us. One side would make this psalm about our performance. This side tempts us to do what is right in order to put God in our debt. It turns our faith into moralism, and it ignores our very real need for forgiveness, for healing, to be made new in Christ. This side turns us into liars, because if it's about performance, then we have to be perfect, and we can't do that. The other side rightly sees how Christ is the true worshiper and dismisses the very real and true call for these traits to be present in our lives. Nowhere does Jesus cancel the call for obedience. Nowhere does he say, I did it so that you don't have to. This side flattens scripture and makes it powerless in our lives. But the narrow path teaches us that salvation is not a thing to be earned. If you are in Christ, you were earned. You were bought with a price. You are the temple, of the, Holy Spirit, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So glorify God by walking blamelessly. The strong man was bound, and you were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Why would you go back? Long for these traits. Ask God to help you grow in them, and thank him as you see them increasing. Find refuge in God's righteousness and seek his presence and rule in your life. Let's pray. Our Father, we long for your presence. We long for the protection that you provide from the attacks of the enemy. So we ask that as we are tested, that our faith would be proven through your Holy Spirit's preserving power. Open our eyes to the ways that we have been scoffers so that we can repent and guard us against scoffers that would steal us from you. Help us to walk this narrow path, to not trust in our righteousness, which will fail us, 
but let our obedience be trusting in your righteousness. We ask all of this knowing that it aligns with your will in your son, Jesus. Amen.